0: Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 to 15. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. He chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself, 2,000 were with Saul at Mishmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Geber, and the Philistines heard about it. So Saul blew the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. Then the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 3,000 chariots... 6,000 horsemen and troops as, num- as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Mishmash, east of beth The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, because the troops were in a difficult situation. They hid in caves, in thickets, among rocks, and in holes and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul, however, was still at Gilgal, and all his troops were gripped with fear. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and the troops were deserting him. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. So Saul went out to greet him, and Samuel asked, what have you done? Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me and you didn't come within the appointed days and the Philistines were gathering at Mishmash, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not done what the Lord commanded. Then Samuel went from Gilgal to Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul registered the troops who were with him, about 600 men. This is the word of the Lord. You know, Waiting is hard.
1: It's hard to wait and to be patient whether you're waiting in Seattle traffic. Uh, Under ordinary circumstances, you know how frustrating that can be. It's hard to wait when you are in line at the grocery store and the clerk seems to be taking their time and there's lots of buggies in front of you filled to the brim with all sorts of things. It's hard to wait and be patient when you're baking bread and giving the time for that bread, that dough to rise so that you can bake a good loaf. It's hard to wait at the doctor's office when you're in the waiting room, waiting for a, an appointment that you may be nervous or anxious about. see, waiting is hard because it requires you and I to relinquish control. When we are having to wait, we are at the mercy of other actors, whether those actors are other drivers or clerks or Those actors are the yeast that needs to activate in the dough that's rising or busy doctors. And we don't like being at the mercy of other people or other actors because it makes us feel too vulnerable. Therefore, it's hard for us to wait. It's hard for us to exercise patience. And when we grow impatient, that's when we start taking matters into our own hands. That's when we start driving a little bit more aggressively. Uh, That's when we get short and agitated and irritable with the slow clerks at the grocery store. That's when we ruin a good batch of dough by rushing the process. It even happens as we kind of compound our struggles in the waiting room at the doctor's office by growing unnecessarily worried or unnecessarily anxious, and we're just compounding the struggles that we are having that should be added to the chart that they are looking at. You see, impatience is a vice, Impatience is a vice that makes everything worse. And when impatience kind of grips the heart, it pulls the heart in dangerous directions. It pulls our lives in directions that can be, can be harmful. Well, today we're looking at a story in 1 Samuel chapter 13 that illustrates the tragic outcome of impatience. It's a story where King Saul uh, fails to exercise a patient faith. He fails to wait upon the Lord through thick and thin, and as a result, he forfeits his kingdom. He forfeits his future. He even forfeits the future of his legacy as he jeopardizes his family. So, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to grab those, turn them open to First Samuel chapter thirteen. If you were new to the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. You can utilize that resource. Find your way to First Samuel chapter thirteen. Our church has been in a, a study titled "When When Mess Meets Mercy: The Gospel of First Samuel," and we are making our way through this Old Testament book that tells of the early days of the nation of Israel and how they are establishing themselves and the Lord is seeking to establish them in the world. Now last week we looked at chapter 12 and we heard of how that moment when the prophet Samuel presided over a formal ceremony designed to bring the people of Israel and the king of Israel back underneath the reign and the rule of God. They were called in that moment to realign themselves underneath the rule of God because they have they went wayward. They moved out from under the reign of the Lord. And so the prophet Samuel called them back to that dynamic because Samuel knew that the people of Israel had been called out of Egypt, redeemed and rescued by God, established in that part of the world to serve as a light to the nations. That they were to be the one people group in the world showing everyone what life looks like when God is king. And so at the end of that chapter, verse 25, after they have this formal ceremony of recommitment, of realignment, of recalibration, verse 25 ended with a warning. So you look at verse 25 of chapter 12, and the prophet Samuel told the people, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. And sadly, what's going to take place over the next few chapters is exactly that. King Saul will continue to be disobedient. He will not trust the Lord in every moment and his capacity as king. And as a result, he's going to be swept away. Now in chapter 13, we get a f- our first snapshot of kind of why that happened. The first snapshot of several that are strung together over the f- next few chapters that showcase why Saul uh, would be swept away. His Refusal in this moment is to wait patiently on the Lord. So in chapter 13, this passage that was read so well for us a moment ago by our friend Debs, it starts out in verse 1, just kind of summarizing uh, Saul's tenure as king. And then we are given a a rundown on the size of his army. We are told that Saul has 3,000 troops who are ready to go wherever he leads them. That they are ready to go after any enemy that rises up against the people of Israel, or at least that's what we are led to believe. And at that point in time, the Israel's biggest rival were known as the Philistines. They were the 49ers to the Seahawks here. They were the, well, mariners don't really qualify to have a rival just given their state of things, but they're, they're, they're trying, they're working hard. Well, the Philistines were Israel's rivals during this time. And one of the reasons why the people of Israel requested a king The reason why they insisted that the Lord would give them a king, which resulted in Saul, the reason for that is because they feared the surrounding nations. Specifically, they feared the Philistines. And so earlier in chapter 8, we read that the people of Israel asked the Lord for a king because then they said, we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. And then in the next chapter, Saul is anointed king. He's anointed ruler. And we're told that one of his primary responsibilities would be to deliver Israel specifically from the Philistines, that that was a particular problem the king was supposed to deal with. Now, at this time, the Philistines had seized and occupied a city just resting in the heart of Israelite territory, a city known as Gibeah. in this passage. It's likely a variation of a place called Gibeah, which we've read about in previous weeks. And and from this place in the heart of Israelite territory, the Philistine armies harassed Israel. They economically oppressed Israel, and so the people of Israel wanted deliverance. They wanted rescue, and they thought that by insisting on a king like the other nations had, they would find it. The people of Israel got to the point where they forgot their history and they no longer trusted the Lord to do for them what he had done so many times for their ancestors, delivering them from opposing forces, delivering them from various enemies. And Israel kind of lost sight of that at this point in time. And so that's kind of the scene. That's the situation of this chapter. Then in verse 3, we're told that Jonathan, who happens to be Saul's son, He launched an attack on the Philistine garrison, the Philistine stronghold at Gibeah. Now, we don't know if Saul told Jonathan to launch this attack. We don't know if Jonathan kind of took this initiative upon himself. We do see Jonathan acting in similar ways in the next couple of chapters, but Saul certainly supported it. He supported the attack, which is why he blows the ram's horn throughout the land. And so he, blows this signal, this ancient battle cry that was a lot like what would happen in London, England, when enemy forces would fly overhead, dropping bombs on the city during World War II, and these sirens would ring out, warning the people, giving everyone a heads up. Well, this is what was happening there. This battle horn is being blown to rally Israel because something's about to go down. And news began to spread that credited Saul with this attack. And so all 3,000 of Saul's soldiers joined him. They kind of moved their operations to a place called Gilgal, which was just a few miles northeast of, of Gibeah, which is where the Philistine stronghold was. And when they got there, they learned that the Philistines were upset. As you can imagine, the Philistines' ire began to rise. They grew angry. They grew. Uh, they were angered by this attack from the people of Israel. And so the Philistines started to rally their forces as well. And we are turned to, told that their forces, according to verse 5, largely outnumbered and largely outgunned the people of Israel. Notice, it says that they boasted in 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, if you like to mark in your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline that final phrase. Troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The reason why I want you to underline that is because this is the same phrase the Lord would use when addressing Abraham after it was revealed that Abraham feared the Lord above all else. That Abraham would obey the Lord no matter what. And in response to this moment, listen to what the Lord said to Abraham. He said, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. There's the phrase. You see, the use of that phrase in this moment is a stroke of storytelling genius. It's the narrator's way of giving you and I a heads up that the Lord's hand is starting to turn against King Saul. And we're going to discover in this chapter and in the next couple of chapters why that is, but we're being cued into that with this little phrase, the Lord's hand is turning against Saul for reasons that will become readily apparent. And so here you have Saul and the forces of Israel, and they are being confronted by this seemingly insurmountable Philistine force as they have made their way to a place called Michmash, uh, Gilgal, which was near Michmash. It's about four miles from where Israel was at this point in time. And and when the people of Israel saw the Philistine forces assembling and they caught wind of how angry the Philistines were, everyone started shaking in their boots. They got scared. They grew frightened and afraid. And we are told that they began to scatter We were told that they hide in caves, they hide in thickets among rocks, holes, and even in cisterns. Now, a cistern was an ancient honey bucket, right? They're they're jumping in porta-potties to hide from the Philistine forces who were about to descend upon them. So Israel's afraid. And those who weren't hiding in the vicinity of what was about to happen started to flee. Many of them ran back and they crossed over the Jordan River, which suggests that they were trying to get back to Egypt. Fear was driving them back to the place of slavery that their ancestors endured for such a long time. Fear was decimating God's people in this moment. Now, when you think about fear, and I know each of us have felt frightened over the course of our days for different reasons, I want you to know that fear in and of itself is not sinful. It is not a sin to be afraid. In fact, it's not something that we should be ashamed of. If you are frightened by something or if you are afraid of something, that's not something you should be ashamed of or feel guilty over because in many cases, fear can serve you well. We should be afraid of a clear, present, and real danger. Anything that may threaten us, we should rightfully fear to some degree. But what counts in those moments when fear begins to rise and we start feeling afraid, what counts in that moment is how we respond to that fear. And we can respond by either one acting foolishly like the people of Israel are as they are running and hiding. They're trying to return to Egypt. They're jumping in toilets to get away from their enemies. They are acting foolishly in this moment. Or we can respond to our fear by exercising faith, by trusting the Lord no matter matter what. And usually the deciding factor between acting foolishly or exercising faith, it's this component of patience. It's can we be patient enough in the face of what we fear to experience the Lord's deliverance? To experience the Lord acting on our behalf to deliver us from whatever we are, ulti- whatever in that moment we are afraid of. Now, if you look at Saul's response in the story, at first, Saul responds with faith and he seems to be trusting the Lord. We are told that he did exactly what God told him to do earlier in chapter 10. Because earlier in chapter 10, after Saul was anointed Israel's ruler, this is what Samuel told him to do. He said, I want you to go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. So at first, that's exactly what Saul does, and he should be commended. He went to Gilgal, and he waited seven days, waiting for God's spokesperson, this man named Samuel, to show up. But as time rolled on, Saul grew impatient. His patience began to wear thin, because on the seventh day, he looked around, and he couldn't see Samuel. On the seventh day, he looked around, and he saw his soldiers bailing on him. And so rather than waiting on the Lord and exercising a patient faith, Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. You see, one of the most challenging things about waiting on the Lord, one of the most difficult things about waiting on the Lord and being patient in our faith is that while we are waiting, everything else just keeps moving. Right? Time keeps moving. Circumstances are evolving, they are changing, everything continues to move even though we are called to wait on the Lord. And it often seems like whatever might be opposing us or whatever might be threatening us, it seems that when we are called to wait upon the Lord, that those things are just getting stronger and those things are just growing and the advantage they seem to have over us is just far more apparent and becoming far more pronounced. Be it you and I, as followers of the Lord, as worshipers of Yahweh, as believers in Jesus, we are called to exercise a patient faith in the midst of various trials and in the midst of all kinds of fear-inducing circumstances. Psalm 37, verse 7, for example, "...be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans." In other words, don't grow impatient because everyone else keeps rolling on and everyone else keeps moving forward. We wait patiently for the Lord to act. But you see, an inability to exercise a patient faith, it can turn a trial into a tragedy. It can turn a hard situation into a horrendous situation. Impatience always makes things worse. And King Saul is going to learn this lesson the hard way because rather than waiting on the Lord to act on his and Israel's behalf, he takes matters into his own hands. He doesn't wait. He doesn't trust. He doesn't sit still just a little bit longer. And in verse 9, what does he do? Verse 9, we are told that Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And then he offered the burnt offering. He does the very thing he was not authorized to do. He oversteps the boundaries that the Lord placed on his life and tries to function as a priest, though he was to be king, who waited. He could have used that time to do all sorts of other things. He could have preached to his soldiers. He could have encouraged them to wait a little bit longer. He could have implored them to trust that the Lord would act, that the prophet would not be absent, that he would show up. He could have done so many things, but in this moment of impatience, In this moment where his faith was lacking, he he grabs hold of the circumstance. He tries to take control. But then you got to love the comedic timing, right? The way the story is told, Saul takes matters into his own hands. He does his thing. And then we're told immediately after that that Samuel arrived. So Saul's hand is caught in the proverbial cookie jar. He's doing the very thing. He was not authorized to do. He's not waiting. He's not trusting. He's not exercising faith. He's not leading the people of Israel to wait and to trust and to exercise faith. Instead, he's got his hand stuck in the cookie jar. And all he had to do was wait a little bit longer. He just had to wait a little bit longer. But isn't that how it goes so often for us? We grow impatient with the Lord's timing. We think the Lord is slow to act on our behalf. We think the Lord is slow to deliver us from whatever we are afraid of losing, and so we start to grab hold of our circumstances. We start to grab hold of our situation. We start to try and take control. We work ourselves up into a frenzy. We grow anxious. We grow worried. We grow frustrated. We grow bitter. All the while, the only thing you and I have been called to do is to wait patiently to be still and to know that the Lord is God, to be still and to know that the Lord loves us and that he's got us. He's not gonna abandon us. He's not gonna forsake us. He's not going to hand us over to be defeated by our enemies. But I think what happens so often in our lives is that we give our circumstances far too much credit. We act as though our circumstances are sovereign and God isn't. We act as though our circumstances are more formidable than God is faithful, and that's a huge problem. And so Saul is falling victim to this. Saul is giving in to that faithlessness in his heart. And then Samuel asked him this important question. Right after Samuel showed up, he looked at Saul and said, What have you done? Now this is a loaded question. This is a big question. It's the same question the Lord would ask Adam and Eve immediately after they partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord showed up, asked, What have you done? It's the same question the Lord would ask Cain after Cain murdered his brother Abel. And this is the question the Lord is now asking Saul through the prophet Samuel, what have you done? But when you hear this question, understand that this question is not designed to solicit unknown information. Samuel is not not asking this because he doesn't know what Saul has done. Just like the Lord didn't ask this question because the Lord didn't know what Adam and Eve had done or what Cain had done. That's not why this question is being asked. It's not designed to solicit unknown information. It's a question designed to solicit a humble confession. He's asking this question, saying to Saul, tell me what you've done because I don't think you realize what you've done. Now, parents often have this type of exchange with their kids. Right, We walk into a situation and we know what's just gone down. Young ones, if you're hearing this word of advice, if mom or dad ever asks you, what have you done? Uh, just tell them. They they already know. Uh, they're not asking that question to find out something from you. They're asking that question to solicit a confession. So just go ahead and give in and, and tell them what you've done. I learned this lesson the hard way when I was a kid and I grabbed a box of matches. I pulled them into my room and I just started striking matches and blowing them out because I liked the smell, and I was just lighting these matches. I'm glad the Lord saved me from those pyro tendencies at, a, at an early age, but I was grabbing these matches, lighting them up, and then my mom came in, and she knew what was, had just happened. She could smell the smoke in the air. She knew something wasn't right, and she asked me, what did I do? And at first, I tried to hide. I tried to conceal. I tried to keep it hidden, and that did not go well for me. And it doesn't go well for Saul either in this moment. Rather than owning up and humbly confessing to the Lord and to Samuel what he has just done, what Saul does is what so many of us do when we're asked the question, what have you done? Rather than humbly confessing what we have done, we try to self-justify. We try to defend ourselves. We try to argue. We try to explain and excuse away the things that we have done. This is how Adam and Eve responded to the Lord when asked the question. It's how Cain responded when he was asked the question, what have you done? And it's how you and I often answer that question too. We take that moment and we cast the finger of blame in somebody else's direction. We take that moment and we and we describe the circumstances that led to our decision as an effort to excuse our disobedience or to justify ourselves in that that moment. But in Saul's case, what does he do? He casts shade on the troops. He says, look, my soldiers are bailing on me. He pointed at his circumstances. He said, the Philistine army, have you seen those guys? They are far bigger and badder than we are. They are descending upon us, so look at them and you will understand why I did what I did. All the while, Saul doesn't take any responsibility. He doesn't acknowledge anything wrong on his part. Now, it was true his soldiers were bailing. It was true the Philistines were intimidating, but it was also true that Saul was being disobedient, that he wasn't exercising faith. Now, it is quite common for you and I to read Saul's story in this moment and to want to sympathize with him. I mean, we can look at his circumstance and, and say, you know, Saul was in a desperate situation. For him to obey God in that moment would have required him to trust the Lord against every instinct. Against all evidence that was around him. It, it would have required him to trust the Lord even against the, everything he's really experienced as king up to that moment in time. The Philistines were coming in massive numbers. The Israelites were slipping away. Everyone was terrified. From our perspective, we could be persuaded to say, okay, Saul, we understand why you've done what you've done. You and I could possibly be persuaded to kind of come alongside him and excuse his disobedience, excuse his rash expression of faithlessness. We could be persuaded to see things from his perspective. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, our perspective on situations like this doesn't matter. The philosophy that our culture loves of multi-perspectivalism, it doesn't carry any weight between the divine human exchange. And at the end of the day, your perspective, my perspective, your thoughts, my thoughts, your assessment, my assessment, they don't really matter. At the end of the day, only one perspective matters. At the end of the day, there's only one impartial judge who sees every situation with crystal clarity. At the end of the day, there's only one assessment that matters above all other assessment, and it is given in this situation. The Lord would speak through Samuel to give his assessment of what Saul has done, and listen to what he says the Lord drops his perspective when Samuel says, Saul, you have been foolish. Now, I don't know how that statement hits you. It seems harsh. Saul, you've been foolish. It seems harsh. It seems hard. It seems unnecessary. But I want you to know that the word foolish or fool in the Old Testament, it carries a particular kind of meaning. When Samuel says to Saul, you have been foolish, this is not the ancient equivalent of calling somebody an idiot. That's not what's going down here. There's a lot of weight. There, there's character behind this term that we got to understand, and that is, according to Psalm 14.1, we're told the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now, we like to take that expression and apply it to atheists, right? We like to say, well, uh, the fool that says in his heart there is no God, th- those are atheists, those who those that formally uh, reject the existence of God, and we apply it in that direction only. But I want you to know that this phrase and this verse applies far more widely than we care to admit. Because that phrase doesn't simply refer to someone who says God doesn't exist. That phrase, more often than not, refers to people who may believe God exists, but live and act as though He doesn't. It's those who live and act as though the Lord is not going to act on our behalf. As if the Lord is not going to take care of His people. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, the Lord doesn't care about me. The fool says in his heart, God doesn't have me, so I have to take control of my life, my situation, my circumstances. I've got to grab life by the horns and do things myself. But you know, there are many people in the church today who believe that God exists while they live as though He's not going to act on their behalf. There are many people in the church today who profess God's existence, but do not trust that the Lord has already acted on their behalf, which is why. It is far more common for people in the church to try to self-justify their lives rather than to humbly confess where they are wrong. Humbly confess where they are out of line with the Lord's will, with the Lord's wisdom, with the Lord's ways. Humble confession is far less common in the church today than self-justification. Which is why I think practical atheism is a far bigger problem in the church than formal atheism ever will be. This is why Samuel could say, Saul, you've been foolish. You profess faith in the Lord, but you are acting as though he doesn't exist. You profess faith in the Lord, but you are living as though he's not going to take care of you. That's what's considered foolish in the Scriptures. And this is why Saul is called, his actions are called and described as foolish here. He was foolish because he became impatient And he acted as though the Lord wasn't going to keep his word. He acted as though Samuel wasn't going to show up and that the people of Israel couldn't overcome the forces of the Philistines. See, impatience is a vice that grips the heart and it pulls it in dangerous directions. In an instant, Saul forfeited his kingdom. He forfeited the legacy of his lineage. So Samuel says to him, your reign will not endure Which means his son, Jonathan, would not succeed him on the throne. The line would end with Saul. Had he just waited a little bit longer? Had he waited just a moment longer, just been a little bit more patient? But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Well, waiting on the Lord does not mean to be inactive. Waiting on the Lord means to stay the course of obedience no matter what. It means to trust God's word and his promises to take care of you no matter what opposition rises against you. Waiting on the Lord means to trust that God will act on your behalf for your good and his glory. It means to believe that he's got you. So you don't have to compromise your obedience for the sake of protecting yourself. You don't have to compromise your obedience for the sake of achieving a certain outcome that you envision for your life or for the people around you. Obedience must not be compromised in order to overcome what we fear or what we are afraid of in a given moment. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say you fear losing your job. And you've got a job and you're noticing that there are those who seem more secure in their positions and the ones who seem the most secure in their position in your place of employment are those who are the least ethical. They are the ones who cut more corners and do things with less integrity. And so you're tempted when you see that in order to secure your position in the company that you draw the conclusion that you must do what they do. You must approach your job the same way they approach theirs, rather than trusting the Lord to take care of you, even if you were to lose your job. You take matters into your own hands and you compromise your obedience. Or maybe you fear losing a boyfriend that you hope to marry. You're in a relationship with someone who's into you, but he's not really into Jesus. And you know the Lord says you should not marry someone who doesn't share your faith. It's going to pull you in direction, dangerous directions. That's not the route you're to go in. But since you're afraid of being alone, you stop waiting on the Lord. And you proceed in that relationship anyways. See, so that's what it means to be impatient in our faith. It's that type of thing where we compromise our obedience for the sake of taking care of ourselves. Or thinking that's the only way we can get what we need. But a patient faith refuses to compromise obedience to keep what it's afraid of losing. That's true in the most pristine sense in the example of the martyrs. You consider martyrs, people who have given up their lives, refusing to compromise their obedience to keep what they may be afraid of losing, even their own lives. Martyrs' ability to trust that the Lord and His perfect love could cast out their fear in that moment so they could stand firm in their faith and be delivered from anything that is coming up against them, even death in that moment. Because we know that the Lord says that death doesn't get the final word in the life of our people. So what's the worst thing that can happen to us in this world? We suspect, most people think, the worst thing that can happen to us is to die. But when threatened by that reality, people of faith, people of patience, they don't compromise their obedience because of that, because we know that death has been overcome. We know this because last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus, and because of that, death has been defeated by Jesus, and death will be defeated by all those who trust in him. So let me ask you, what might you be afraid of at this very moment? How are you tempted right now to grow impatient? And then on what basis might you be encouraged to exercise a patient faith? On what basis might you be encouraged to wait on the Lord to act on your behalf no matter what? Let me try to give you a basis from this story. I want you to know that the Lord is never disadvantaged by time. He's never disadvantaged by circumstances. Notice that the Lord wasn't even disadvantaged by Saul's disobedience. Notice what he says in verse four, uh, verse 14. Samuel says, right in the middle of verse 14, the Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people. Now this phrase is not necessary. That phrase, a man after God's own heart, it's not necessarily a phrase that expresses this future king's love for God. Although this future king will certainly love God, and we know that this phrase would come to refer to a guy named David, but there's an Australian theologian named John Woodhouse who defines this phrase this way. He says this phrase, a man after God's own heart, means a man of God's own choosing. It's a man God has set his heart on, It is talking about the place the man has in God's heart rather than the place God has in the man's heart. He's a man after God's own heart. It's an expression of God's choice that stands in contrast with Israel's choice. Remember what Saul's name means? The very name Saul means asked for. He was the king, the people requested. And what the people wanted will prove to fail them. Because this king they've asked for, he's going to fail. But now the Lord is saying that he's going to provide them with a better king. He's going to provide the people of Israel with a king of his own choosing, a man of after his own heart. And we know that this choice it is disclosed later. That as you keep reading through the book of 1 Samuel, this choice of God is found in a young shepherd boy named David. And David will become king because of what was in the Lord's heart. And what rested in the Lord's heart was sovereign grace. What rested in the Lord's heart was redeeming love for his people. And the Lord would not allow time. He would not allow circumstances. He would not allow enemies. He would not even allow Saul's disobedience to interfere with that. And so you have the Lord acting on his people's behalf in this moment in a very surprising way. There's another one that he set aside to be king, this other one that we will learn to be David. And with David, God would establish a dynasty that would endure forever. With David, a lineage will be set up that will last all the way to the person of Jesus, the the greater son of David, who would be born in the New Testament. And where Saul would fail to wait patiently upon the Lord and exercise that kind of faith, Jesus never will. Jesus waits upon the Lord in every moment of every day. Jesus is the one who said, look, I only do what I see my father doing. I'm constantly obeying him. I'm listening to him and I'm obeying him. I'm staying the course of obedience no matter what. Jesus never tried to take matters into his own hands. He never tried to grab the reins, not even when the hands of Roman soldiers grabbed him to take him to trial. Not even when those same hands would beat him and abuse him. Not even when those same hands would nail him to the cross where he would be crucified. And we know that the Lord would not allow death on the cross to defeat Jesus, but the Lord would raise Jesus from the grave exalting him above all, giving him the name that is above every name. It is the death and resurrection of King Jesus that assures you and it assures me that we can wait on the Lord, that we can exercise a patient faith even in the face of imminent death. Even in the face of imminent death, we can be patient and stay the course of obedience because King Jesus is alive. And our fate is wrapped up in his fate. His life, our life, his death, our death, his resurrection, our resurrection. That's what baptism symbolizes. That's what this picture gives us, saying, look, you've been united with Christ. What's true of him is true of you. Since he waited on the Lord all the days of his life, you can wait on the Lord too. So that when you come to the end of the days and your life comes to an end in this world, your life can end in faith. Your life can end as you step into the presence of the Lord, hearing the Lord say to you, not not say to you, you've been foolish. But you can hear the Lord say, you've been faithful. You've trusted me. What is the basis of that kind of faith? Well, the basis of that kind of faith is the gospel. It's the life, death, and resurrection of, of King Jesus. He's why we can move into the future with confidence. He's why we can move into the future in humility, confessing what's wrong and trusting that God's grace will be enough for us. He's why you and I don't have to live our lives justifying ourselves to everyone in every moment of every day, constantly defending ourselves, constantly trying to prove ourselves, constantly trying to excuse ourselves. He's the reason we can be set free from all that stuff and come to the end of our days Hearing the Lord say to us, not you've been foolish, but you've been faithful. Let's pray in that direction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into this world to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve to die, to rise from the grave victorious over sin, over Satan, over death. Thank you, Jesus, for paving the way for us so that we might follow in the wake of your obedience all the way into eternity. God, thank you that your perfect love may cast out any fear that may rise up in our hearts. Any fear that might tempt us to disobey you or tempt us to take control of a situation or circumstance. I pray that your perfect love would cast that out so that we might rest in our relationship with you. That we might rest in the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Give us hearts that wait patiently, that wait patiently upon you in all things. God, we love you, and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.